Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, picking up with where we left off, which would be the 12th verse. We finish verse 11. We'll be reading verses 12 through 26. John chapter 12, starting verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can get one in your hands. Starting verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also meet him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Don't you wish people would come to you this week saying that? Yeah. You're just hanging out at work. Not hanging out. We're probably working, but... um. <laughs> Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I hope they see him in our lives. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, uh, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Let's pray again. Father, we want to honor you. And Lord, we are honoring you by reading the very life and words of Jesus. Lord, we pray that they would not be just words on a page, but they'd be written on the tablets of our heart. We pray, Lord, that we would be soft We'd be willing to go into the ground, dying to ourself, that we may be living victoriously in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help me, strengthen me. I could never do your word any close to justice of its power, its authority, its life-changing ability, Lord. But I know that you can. I pray that you would give me your help, your strength. You'd open up the eyes and ears of every person, those watching online, those that are here. Our hearts will be soft and teachable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Apostle John continues on in the timeline here, leading up to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, starting here in verse 12. And recall that we're just now after that meal in Bethany, where Mary has anointed the feet of Jesus with that precious oil of spikenard. Likely unbeknownst to her that he had been prepared for burial, which he stated there at that feast. And with these anointed feet, 
The feet that went from village to village, town to town, preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God, preaching repentance. The same feet that walked on water. Every single step of these feet was now bringing him closer and closer to these same feet being pierced for the sins of the world. And by the way, someday these precious feet of Jesus are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Facing Jerusalem from the east, looking back west. And it's going to split the mountain in two. I put the verse up on the screen. Zechariah 14.4 And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. That is probably when... Well, I know it's the start of the millennium. That's when I'm going to start reporting to Turkish pastors who far outrank me. And Iranian pastors and Ugandan pastors and around the world. But you see, the future day to come, all things are going to be put under the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Everything. Even arrogant Americans. Everything will be put under the feet of Jesus. And as he makes his way towards and then down the Mount of Olives that is someday going to split in two. His anointed feet on that day 2,000 years ago around, on that day his feet don't touch the ground. Why? Because he's sitting on a young donkey. His feet are not even touching the ground. He could have come down without his feet touching the ground in a whole different way, right? But he's riding lowly on a donkey fulfilling one of Zechariah the prophet's other prophecies found in Zechariah 9.9. I'll show up on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he is just and having salvation. No other king that's ever come to this world has salvation. And lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The salvation Jesus is bringing is precisely because he is lowly. Amen? Amen? He wasn't lowly. There is no salvation. But he was going to lower himself all the way to the cross. Now, although Jesus is rightfully the king of Israel, he had every right to proclaim himself as king. He's coming to this Passover, as we've talked about in previous week, as a lamb. He's coming as a lamb. He's coming to take part in the Passover feast but more importantly, to present himself as the lamb for the Passover feast. As Caiaphas and the leaders were plotting his death, Jesus was preparing himself for death. Not trying to avoid it, not trying to run in a different direction, go to another country. No, he's trying to prepare. He was preparing himself as the spotless lamb of Israel for the entire world. He was coming to lose his life that sinners might gain eternal life. If you're taking notes again this morning, uh, when losing is gaining. When losing is gaining. The first thing we'll look at this morning uh, with this trumpet entrance, I've called a glorious entrance. We'll look briefly at Jesus' entrance here into Jerusalem. This is pivotal as this will start the intense Passover week, 
Passion Week, the whole reason Jesus has come. Now, I've covered his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem in detail. Uh, most recently, I covered it in detail with like a 40-minute story form back on April the 10th. And if you are new or you've never really used our resources, I have them up on the screen for you. So you can go out and listen to it on a podcast. We have that option. You can do it on our YouTube channel. You can go directly to our website and choose just audio or download the whole thing. Why do I say that? Because I, I'm not going to go back and do the 40-minute detail Palm Sunday that I did just a few weeks ago. But I encourage you to go out to these locations, uh, all available. And it's great if you, those of you that are online or you're, you're traveling, you can catch up on things, which is nice if you're out of town and things like that. Or just uh, put one in. You didn't hear Wednesday's Psalm chapter 20. It's a great way to work out. I do this with other pastors. I watch Pastor Loran. I watch Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale. I watch Joe Foch. And, you know, I'll catch up on others. So I encourage you to do that. But again, all those are out there as resources. Um, I've referred back to I've referred back to the entrance and the start of the Passover numerous times in the last few weeks because we had Easter and different things like that. Uh, and we know that as he comes to Jerusalem, he's making his way from Bethany, which is on the, you've got to go around the Mount of Olives, but he is making his way from Bethany, and he comes, and he gets on this foal of a donkey, and he begins to descend down the Mount of Olives. Remember, I've shown this picture numerous times. This is when we were standing on the Mount of Olives. We're looking directly, we're, we're on the east side of Jerusalem. We're looking west, and Jesus on the foal of the donkey is coming down this very hill, that, all those green trees in the valley there. That's the Kidron Valley. He's going to come down through the Kidron directly into the temple, which that massive structure, which would dwarf the Dome of the Rock. The temple was all of that in that yellow highlighted area and high up into, you know, several stories high, the temple itself in the dead center. Uh, just a beautiful, magnificent structure. But Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, and he's greeted by throngs and multitudes and thousands that are shouting and praising him. As I, as I mentioned before, it would have looked like a ticker tape parade just lined on both sides, standing room only as far as you could see. Thousands of people lining the road. The road itself carpeted with their outer garments, with palm branches all the way down the mountain, right on into the temple. We know from their shouts that they really saw Jesus as the coming king. When they heard Messiah, they heard king. When they heard anointed, they heard just like David and Solomon. That's what they heard. Here comes our king. Verse 16 tells us the disciples did not, did not understand these things at first, but they would later understand after this, at the end of this week. They didn't understand what was happening that day. Perhaps they thought along with the multitudes, hey, maybe, just maybe, Jesus is ready to stake his claim to the throne. Maybe that very week he would set up his throne. After all, he recently raised a Jewish man from the dead. What other king could do that? What other king had that kind of power? Not just power over an army, but literally power over death. And from John's account, in verse 17... It tells us that the people, it says the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, 
Uh, for this reason, the people also met him. So John's account here in verse 17 and 18, it tells us that the people who were in Bethany with Jesus, the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, those people were spreading the news to anyone that would listen, telling them about what Jesus had done and who Jesus is. That should be our life today. Amen? Tell anyone who will listen what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And it doesn't matter if they've already heard who Jesus is. Your one time opening your mouth may be the time the Holy Spirit pricks their heart even if they've heard it a thousand times before. Amen? But they were spreading this news and there was this buzz and there was this uh, anticipation that his arrival was going to usher in the kingdom. And the crowd side, size began to swell. You can imagine the scene. But not everybody was thrilled. Not everybody was happy. Not everybody was rejoicing. Not everybody was ra- waving palm branches. No. Look at verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Taking notes, point two here, a groaning observation. A groaning observation. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they had despised Jesus for nearly three years. Nearly three years they had despised Jesus, hated him, loathed him. On a couple of attempts, picked picked up stones, ready to stone him. The Sanhedrin, we've talked about the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of 71 Jewish leaders, they had already met previously, they had met to plot his death, and they determined if Jesus came to this Passover week, now remember, he's never missed a feast, so if he came to this feast, this Passover, this would be the week they would apprehend him and kill him. This was their mindset. They were determined to do it. They had already plotted the whole thing out. His execution in their minds would eliminate the man they felt was deceiving the nation when in actuality they were the ones that were being deceived. That's still true today. You'll you'll meet people that say, you Christians, you believe in a fairy tale. You believe in a mythical figure. You believe in some God up in the sky. But they believe in things that have failed millions of times in world history, don't they? They believe in other human beings. They believe in their own health, which is, which is fading as fast as their age. They believe in their 401ks. They believe in their companies. They believe in Enron. Right? I'm just giving you an example of things that people have believed in and put their whole stock in. Some kids are like, what is Enron? You know, that's, that's old news, you know. But historically speaking, man fails every single time. God's never failed once. Ever. So they were deceived and, and trusted in themselves. In their mind, to eliminate Jesus was to eliminate his following. They also proposed that to kill Jesus would save the nation from any unwanted Roman Aggression. They didn't want Rome to get all focused on them. Put them back in chains. But less than 40 years later, Rome was going to level Jerusalem. We're going to read the passage about it in just a few minutes. Rome was going to level Jerusalem. 
And of course, three days after the cross, when they finally get their wish and they put Jesus to death, three days after it, he's going to rise from the dead, right? So when you think about it, there are two main, the two main prongs of their plan. Kill Jesus, save the nation. Guess what happens? Jesus rises from the dead and the nation is destroyed. The complete opposite of their two-pronged approach is what's going to happen. Now, that won't come to full fruition until 70 AD. But their perfect plan is not going to go as planned. And yet God is still going to use these evil men. He's using Caiaphas. God will use people that... We say, God, why would you even use this person in history? Why would you use a Nebuchadnezzar? Why would you use a Pharaoh to accomplish his will? Amen? So he's going to use Pilate. He's going to use these Pharisees. He's going to use Judas, of course, to bring Jesus to the cross. But as Jesus is descending, again, back to that scene, as he's descending down the Mount of Olives, take you back, he's on that fall of a donkey. He's headed down the Mount of Olives, the crowds are euphoric. The news of Lazarus' resurrection continues to spread. Did you hear? He raised a man who's been dead for four days. He's even here. Lazarus is probably in the city. You can meet him yourself. The Pharisees, they see all this, and they groan with disgust. They even see some defeat in their own minds and in their own plan as they second-guess. Can they even stop this momentum Thousands upon thousands are, are throwing their clothes at Jesus' feet. Can they stop the momentum that has surrounded Jesus? Even to the Pharisees themselves, it seems impossible. But by what John says here, say, they say, you look, uh, you're, uh, you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Even to these men who have this plan and plot in place, it seems impossible to them that this crowd could somehow turn from Jesus much less Jesus, much less that they would actually hate him by the end of the week. Seems impossible to them. And the Pharisees, as they groan and complain that the multitudes and potentially the world will follow after Jesus. And by way we pray, we wish the whole world would follow after Jesus, right? They were wishing the world wouldn't follow after Jesus. We're wishing the world would follow after Jesus. We're wishing that 8,000 Turkish believers would be 8 million and then 83 million. But they're, they're just like Satan. They are angered that people might believe in Jesus. But as they're groaning, as they're complaining, Jesus sees the scene like no one else can see it. No one else sees the scene like Jesus. The, the crowds are rejoicing. The disciples are confused. and con I mean, they're, they're kind of glad to see all this rejoicing, but they don't know what to make of it. They're confounded by it. The Pharisees are disgusted by it. And while they're groaning, Jesus is descending and He's grieving. I don't know how many of you are aware of it, but uh, you've, a lot of times the Palm Sunday story is told in children's classes and, and it's taught on you know, the week before Easter and all that good stuff. And people have heard the story many, many times. And you just always see Jesus on the donkey and everyone's waving, everyone's shouting. But did you know that Jesus, as he was coming down the mountain 
the scriptures tell us in one gospel account, because we get the different facet views from the different gospels, in one of the gospels, it tells us that Jesus was grieving, weeping, as he came down the mountain. Jesus looks at the city, and he weeps. He knows that they do not see him as the lamb. He knows they do not see him as the Passover lamb. He knows they don't see him as the Savior. They don't even want him as the Savior. They don't see him as the one who can cleanse their sins. He sees them as still unrepentant, that they want a king they can fashion for themselves. This is just like America. We want a king we can fashion just like ourselves. But God's like, I'm not sending you someone like yourself. I'm sending you like someone like myself. God sent his son who's equal to the Father. But as Jesus comes down, and I have it up on the screen, we see it's recorded in Luke's Gospel in the 19th chapter, verses 41 through 44. This is what's going through Jesus' heart and how what he expresses. He even speaks that Luke records it for us. Now as he drew near, again he's on the donkey, he draws near the city probably when he's cresting right over the top of the Mount of Olives. And he wept over the city. Now the apostles saw this, and other people saw it. They didn't know what to make of it. They paid it little attention. Thankfully, Luke recorded it, as the Holy Spirit would have it. If you, this is what Jesus says. He actually speaks here. If you had known, even you, especially speaking to the whole crowds there gathered in Jerusalem, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace. I can see God speaking this to America. If you had known what would really give you peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come when your enemies will build embankments all around you, surround you and close you in on every side, Jesus prophesied here, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is part of the Palm Sunday, part of the triumphant entrance story that's not told often, but this is what Jesus was saying as he's on the donkey. He's speaking this. Most people are paying it no attention, but Luke writes it all down and says, I better capture this. This is really important stuff. This means Jerusalem's going to be leveled and everyone destroyed because they did not know the time of their visit. They did not know what would bring them peace and the Prince of Peace had come to be their lamb. See, John at this point John doesn't record it, but he changes scenes here. And the next thing we see is this group of Greeks coming out to find Jesus. Look with me back um, at verse 20. So we know what Jesus is thinking as he looks over the city. We know what he is saying. But we see verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Taking notes, this last point this morning, a grain of great gain. I did it. It's like a tongue twister. And I'm responsible because I wrote it. You know, so this morning I was like, 8.30 service, my mind's like, you know, coffee hadn't done its work yet. But anyway, a grain of great gain. Our last and final point. Jesus... At this point, with verse 20, it says um, these certain Greeks who were among those who came to worship, they come and they find Philip and they say, we, sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Jesus most likely at this point, again, picture in your, there's the Mount of Olives. Remember, as he comes to the bottom, you get to the Kidron Valley there, and you are either going to enter the temple, uh, there's debate among scholars, did Jesus enter through the East Gate, which is called the Golden Gate, or the Beautiful Gate, or did he come through the Sheep Gate? And there's a good case to be made for both. If he came through the Sheep Gate, that's where the sacrificial lambs would come through. If he came through the beautiful gate, that's where the king will walk through. He's both, so we don't really know which gate he entered. But we do know either gate goes directly into the temple. Other, other gates around the city don't enter the temple at all. They enter neighborhoods or communities. But these two gates enter directly into the temple. So most likely with verse 20 here, Jesus is probably dismounted from the donkey and is now inside the temple itself. Massive structure there. He's inside the temple. Uh, that We know that's where he went. As soon as he went into the city, he later clears out the temple. We know that as well. Now John records that a group of Greeks come to worship at the Passover and they're looking for Jesus. We don't know if these certain Greeks, we don't know for certain anyway, we don't know for certain if these certain Greeks are Gentiles or if they're Jewish Greek pilgrims. We don't know which they are that have made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I tend to think, I'm not a Bible scholar, I've read from different scholars, but I tend to think that based on the context and for a number of reasons, I believe that they are Gentile Greek pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem. Gentiles, not Jews. And I'll tell you why. In just a, uh, There are several reasons why I think it uh, I think it's pretty, mostly, um, I wouldn't say an airtight case, but a pretty firm uh, case that these are actually Gentiles, not Jewish. Uh, they've either come to Jerusalem as, if they're Gentile Greeks, assuming that they are, if they are Gentile Greeks, they've either come because they've already professed faith in God, so uh, they have moved to believing in the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or they fully adopted Judaism at this point, which is possible, or they just have a strong respect for the Jewish faith and wanted to see one Passover in their lifetime for themselves. Just see one and go from wherever they're from, Athens, Corinth, wherever, and get all the way to Jerusalem and see this great feast. Because people had heard about the Passover feast from all over the world. First of all, uh, I've said many times, the temple itself should have been listed in the seven ancient wonders of the world. I mean, it was, it would rival anything the world has ever seen. And then the scene of literally millions descending upon Jerusalem with that massive temple that shined and just the, uh, even the Jerusalem stone itself has just an amazing sight at when the sun is setting or rising. But uh, at any rate, they've come there and they wanted to see this for themselves. And now as these uh, Greek visitors have come, they've heard and seen the multitudes of Jewish people. And again, if they're Gentile, they're watching these Jewish pilgrims that are praising Jesus by waving palm branches and speak. Yeshua would have been the name that they were saying. And they're quoting from the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And these Greeks have to wonder, maybe Jesus was part of Judaism and we were never told. Interesting. We're still telling non-believing Jewish people this today. Jesus is part of the Old Testament that you have not been told. Read Isaiah chapter 53, right? Read Psalm 22. But they have to be wondering, 
Why have we not heard of this? We've heard of Moses. We've heard of Elijah. We've heard of Aaron. We've heard of Joshua. We've not heard just prior to this. Is it possible, they're thinking, you've got to be thinking in the mindset of these Greek visitors, is it possible that this man that they keep waving branches to, Jesus, is it possible that he is a prophet like Elijah, like a Moses? And they get to Philip. And they must ask around and say, who, who can get us to Jesus? Well, there's one, of his, there's one of his disciples over there. And, by the way, you're speaking Greek. Philip has a Greek name, which Philip is a Greek name. Philip's the one disciple that they could say, hey, you've got a Greek name. Maybe you can speak Greek. Perhaps Philip spoke both Greek and Hebrew. They uh, convey to Philip that they want to find Jesus. You can picture a Jewish person pointing and say, hey, there's his followers and that one's got a Greek name. Talk to him. We don't know if that's how it went. That's just uh, how I look at all this. And uh, we don't know if he speaks Greek, but uh, we do know that Jesus, if he's moved in the temple, when you go into the temple, it was a massive structure. You had the court of the Gentiles was first. Gentiles could come, and that's as far as they could go. If they wanted to pray to Yahweh, to the Lord, they could come only to the court of the Gentiles. Then you had the next court was the court of women. But that was only for Jewish women. So Gentile women, the court of women was only for Jewish women. That's where Mary Magdalene and the rest, they could get into that court. Then you finally had the court of men, and that was for only Jewish men. So, we don't know, but if Jesus perhaps had moved past the court of Gentiles, past the court of women, and was now at this point in the court of men, it would make sense that someone would have to go to him and to retrieve him. Hey, can you find him and ask him this question? And Philip takes the request to Andrew. I don't know if Andrew is like chief gatekeeper for who can talk to Jesus, but uh, he takes it to Andrew, and Andrew says, all right, we'll take it to Jesus. Takes it to Jesus. He informs, that the two of them inform Jesus that there's some Greek visitors in town for the Passover, and they desperately want to meet him and talk to him. Don't you love Jesus? Out of Everyone wanted to meet him. Out of thousands of people, Jesus stops everything and agrees to talk to them and speak to them. This moment, of course, had been preordained by God the Father. The timing, the audience, all of it, all preordained by God. And given what Jesus says next... And then we look at the context of next week's passage. Look down at next week's passage in verse 30 and 31, why this is important. Jesus answered and said, this voice, verse 30, I'm getting to next week's for a second. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this Israel, Jerusalem, Los Angeles, world. Jesus thinking big picture here. He's come for the world. All right, so with that in mind, it makes sense that God would preordain that this group of Greek visitors, in my view, I'm almost positive Gentile. I'm not going to say dogmatically, but I really believe that the context bears it out. But this group of Greek followers uh, or seekers, along with his Jewish disciples, 
It makes sense that God would ordain that the gathering of what Jesus is about to say, this first thing he's going to say there in the temple, that it would be Jewish and Gentile together. Why? Because he's come for the world. So this statement is being made to both Gentiles and to Jews. He's come for the world. So he says in verse 23, to them, and I believe the them is the Greek seekers, his disciples, and other Jewish pilgrims that have kind of crammed him to hear what he's about to say. He's now off the dunk. What is he going to say? His opening word on this first day of the Passover week, he says, the hour has come. That's what he says. First thing out of it, the hour has come. You'll recall that way back in chapter 2, when Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, remember what he said way back in chapter 2? He said, my hour has not yet come. This is almost three years later now. It's interesting to me that an hour, when we think about an hour, an hour is 60 minutes. It's not just one second of time. Lots can take place in an hour. And when we say the hour has come, and we look at the week of the Passover week, a lot will happen in, because an hour is not just one moment, it's 60 minutes of stuff. I will do this in 40-some minutes. So, when he says the hour, it is a time period, but that time period has come. The period is now upon him and them. What hour? What is the hour that he's speaking of? Well, the hour is that the Son of Man, and when you hear the Son of Man, that is the Son of God who came as a man. But the Son of Man is to be, and he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The Son of Man should be glorified. Everyone there might be thinking, imagine if you're, you're the Greek seekers, you just got there from Athens. You've seen this massive praising of Jesus. You've never heard this name. You've read the Old Testament. You're like the Ethiopian eunuch. This is not making sense, but we've got to meet this guy. All the disciples are gathered. Everyone's there, thousands upon thousands. Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And you can imagine everybody thinking, all right, he's going to be king in days now. When he says glorified, this must mean a golden throne. Does not mean a golden throne yet. And then Jesus goes on with this analogy. He says, Moses surely, after he says the Son of Man must be glorified, next verse, Moses surely, verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. I was like, what? This is the coronation speech? Jesus says a seed, if it goes into the ground, it's going to bring forth much. When a seed goes in the ground, covered by the earth, covered by darkness, uh, when that seed, if you plant a seed this summer, if you're even remotely successful, this is what's going to happen. The seed coat will rupture when it's under the ground. The seed coat will rupture and it'll produce a little primary root will come out. And then later it'll produce an upward shoot. And then what's called a seedling will appear, and finally, it will bear its own seeds, and eventually, it will even bear fruit. But this will not happen unless the seed goes into the ground. It has to go in. There's not a way, well, I just want to have it happen on the top of Midlothian Turnpike. 
No, the run over has to go into the ground. But if it does, the miracle of multiplication happens. In verse 24, Jesus is first speaking of his own precious life going into the darkness, into, into the grave, that many lives would come forth. Not stalks of corn, not tomatoes, not apples, but many lives would come forth. And by the way, I love that all throughout nature, we get the picture of the resurrection all the time. We're in one right now, spring. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I remember I was out running, and I looked in the trees, looked dead as a doornail. And, it, and I, many people have observed this. This is like a, not a new observation. But again, it will hit me. I look at, they looked as dead as a doornail, and I knew that they would soon bud, and then they would soon cause me not to breathe with pollen. And then, <laughs> but then after you survive that, there's these big green leaves that provide shade, and late, late, later, if they, depends on the kind of tree they are, some will bear fruit, some will have acorns that will drive your yard nuts, but, um, but they're fruitful nonetheless. But it's all a picture of regeneration. God's always rebirth. Things that look dead that come back to life. It's all in nature as well. The, the, in other words, the resurrection story is kind of etched in creation itself. But Jesus, back to Jesus here, he's not just going to die. He's not just going to go into the grave. He's not just going to go into the ground. But he's going to be more than just die. He's going to willingly be crucified. Not death by carbon monoxide or something like that. Crucified, tortured, and in the fullness of God's plan. Here's some really good news. Because Jesus said, I'm going to be glorified. And you're like, glorified? Shouldn't that be the golden crown? No, it'll be a crown of thorns. In God's economy, crucified equals glorified. Crucified equals glorified. But only the crucifixion of Jesus equals glorified. If you and I were crucified, we would get no further being saved than any other just die of old age. We could be crucified, the thief on the cross, his crucifixion could not save him. He had to turn to Jesus and said, remember me. Only one crucified equals glorified. And that's Jesus. Understand that the Greeks, the Greeks are there. The Greeks, they wanted gods like Apollos, mighty gods. You know, you, you've seen them on Disney movies and stuff. They didn't want a crucified man. The Jews, they wanted a king like David, a, a, a mighty man like Solomon. Not a man condemned to a Roman cross. But Jesus came for what we need, not what we want. Amen? Aren't you glad he came for what we need? We wouldn't even know what we need. And understand, it's easy to want Jesus when everyone is praising him and the whole crowd is adoring him. That's easy to love Jesus in that moment. Not as easy when you live in Turkey and no one's praising Jesus. Not as easy... When you live in parts of Saudi Arabia, parts of Nigeria, different places around the world, not near as easy. But on top of all that, for, for Jesus, you can believe in him when he's alive and everyone's adoring him. What if he dies later in the week? Then what will you believe? Because Jesus is setting all this up. We're going to see in the next coming verses all this he's going to lay it out. We'll look much more at the sacrifice of Jesus in coming weeks. 
But only through the death and only through the blood of Jesus could Gentiles or Jews be cleansed from their sins. Being crucified could never save them, could never save us. Jesus nonetheless is explaining as he goes on, and we're going to finish these last few verses here, uh, he's nonetheless he's explaining the steps that he'll soon be taking as he goes into the ground, but he's also explaining steps we're going to have to follow in like manner as a pattern. As a pattern. To do what? Well, first of all, we'll have to follow his words at our heart level, not just kind of speak them. We'll have to follow his words to receive eternal life. We'll have to fall upon the grace of God. We'll have to fall upon the grace of God, not caring what it's going to cost us. It's not going to cost us anything we can actually buy anyway. The point of salvation, when a person really comes to Christ, when they really uh, are born again, as Jesus talked about in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, the point of salvation is to believe so sincerely in Jesus that you're okay with. And I remember having this war in my mind before I walked that altar call at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, June of 1995. I was wrestling with, man, if I go forward, no more drunken Friday nights. Uh, no more this, no more that. I, I really, literally, I, was, I had this internal warfare of what it was going to cost me. I couldn't buy my salvation, but God was saying, hey, if you, come, if you grab my hand, you're going to have to let go of what's in your hand. Things you're holding on to, the little idols in your hand, they're going to have to drop. You have to believe so sincerely in Jesus that you're okay with the former desires in your flesh. And this world is crucified. Because he says, he says of himself in verse 24, it has to go in the ground and die. But then he goes on in verse 25. He says, he who loves his life is going to lose it. In other words, you try and hold on. Oh man, I'm not giving up the American dream for Jesus. No way. But I will say a sinner's prayer. Does that work? And I'll, 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 can, I, can I visit him twice a year and that kind of thing? And everything's taken care of? No, he says, he who tries to, who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, you're willing to give it up. Say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to keep this life. I want to gain your life, the risen life, eternal life. Up on the screen, I've put three passages from Galatians. I call this the Galatians explanation. Paul addressing what Jesus, in, in my mind, uh, this is going right back to some of the central thoughts of what Jesus is saying here. We have these three verses from Galatians, and they all talk about being crucified. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, um, once you've been crucified, I, I could never have imagined me preaching on a Sunday morning in this pulpit except Jesus totally changing me. My old life had to die. Even the things I want, because I, I used to love my Sunday mornings. How about y'all? My, my Sunday mornings, did not, they were not about the Lord. They were about chilling out. He goes on to say in verse... Uh, chapter 5, verse 24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. We've died to our own. And it doesn't mean, by the way, we're, not, we're far from perfect still, but we've died to the desires. We say, Lord, I don't even want to do that stuff anymore. I don't want to live that way. I don't even want to think that way. I don't want to be a prayerless person anymore. 
then finally in chapter 6, verse 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was a smart guy. He spoke, we believe, at least six languages. He could have made quite a mint in this world. He already had a, a highly successful job. He died to all that because Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He gave his life to Christ and he had to drop everything he was holding on to and he couldn't try and hold... But I had a great job for the Pharisees. I was my... What, what, what's my retirement plan going to look like now? God's like, it's going to be an eternal retirement plan. Otherwise, you would have ended up in hell. You would have amassed a pharisaical fortune and then ended up eternity in hell. Not, not worth the trade, is it? But the one who says, I don't care about my physical life. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care what people think about me anymore. I just want Jesus. The one who says, I want to be spiritually reborn. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I don't want to have guilt anymore. I just want Jesus. The one who says, they've seen the crucified Savior like the, the Roman centurion. He saw Jesus on the cross. He did not see a worthless criminal. He said, truly, this is the Son of God. The crucified proved to him that Jesus had been glorified. The one that once Jesus no longer lives for the pseudo-glory of this world. And when that seed of faith goes into the ground, when that seed of faith of dying to this desire that most people have of saving themselves, I, I want to do just enough works to make God happy. It never works. Saving themselves or trying to hold on to this fading life which you can't hold on to anyway. Well, the person who's really given their life will someday burst out of the ground just like Jesus. Yeah. You're going to burst out of the ground, not just metaphorically, but literally. You'll be like a plant coming up out of the ground for eternity. But right now, spiritually speaking, we're already bearing fruit. Amen? Paul died to his old life. And remember I just mentioned Turkey? Isn't it amazing that Paul planted churches all throughout Turkey? And today there's only 8,000. But while he was there, thousands came to faith. Oh, it sprung up like a wheat field. And that's what will happen. It, uh, if we're really born again, it's going to produce spiritual fruit. It's all through Jesus that you and I can't make anything happen. And because our salvation follows the pattern of Jesus' uh, death, which his pattern was yielding to the will of God, and our pattern is yielding to his word, our post-salvation, once we are really saved, if we really have been born again, our life follows the pattern of his life and ministry. Because Jesus goes on to say here, he says, um, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, that servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So we see that our salvation following the pattern of Jesus in our life post-salvation we're going, to, we're going to follow the footsteps of his ministry. Jesus did not come to this world to be served. He did not come to sit and just listen to messages. He came to be a servant of the Lord. A servant. A servant of people. Washing feet, as we're going to see later in this very uh, uh, Gospel of John. A proof of our salvation. Hear this out. Those of you online, please hear this. A proof of our salvation is not a sinner's prayer. It's a servant's heart. A proof of our salvation is now that we have a servant's heart. I didn't say we're perfect. None of us are going to be perfect this side of eternity. But we will know when we no longer say, Lord, I, 
I'm just in it for me. No, you say, I want to serve Jesus, and that means I want to serve people. It's a proof. It's not the only proof of our salvation, but it's a significant proof. God provides the gift of our salvation. None of us can earn it. God provides the gift of our salvation. That's called grace. But spirit-led works and sacrifice are an evidence of our salvation. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you really have died to yourself and been raised up into eternal life, the evidence of your servant life is going to follow. You don't have to like, I don't have to fake it anymore. It's just going to flow by the Holy Spirit. Amen? You don't have to fake it if you're saved. It's going to flow by the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls it fruit. And we know that the root determines the fruit. If the root is true salvation, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, you shall know them by their fruit. Well, I, 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 know, that they, I know that they really hate going to church, but, I'm, but they said a certain prayer when they were 12. That's not fruit. That's bad fruit. He also says you'll know them by bad fruit. I have seen so many, though, thankfully, I've seen so many born-again believers in my short 27 years of being saved, I've seen so many born-again believers that die to the old person they once were. I know some, you know some. I know quite a few now. Um, and But today, they are humble. They're not perfect, but they are loving, sacrificial servants. I mean, I... Jeff Stone down there in Guadalajara, what God has done, what Bill James, I mean, these guys were a wreck. And now they are producing fruit fields like of salvations that just blow my mind. Their death to themselves has brought about the great gain of new lives. And when a seed goes in the ground, I want to finish with this thought. Understand, seeds, when they go in the ground, they don't say, I'm going to produce something. Seeds don't say that. God does the work. Amen? Amen? God pours out the Spirit. It's, the seed can't do it any more than you and I can. It is a miracle of God that you and I produce anything at all. Amen? But if we die to ourselves and fall on the grace of Jesus, He'll produce. Amen? Father, we thank You that Your Word is true. Jesus, we thank You that You have not minced words, but You've given us the words necessary for salvation. But even after salvation, Lord, just to convict us of where we've been sitting on our hands or sitting on your truth or ignoring the call to be servants, to follow in your footsteps. And Lord, as we uh, today will be sending uh, the Cawthorns out, Lord, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see that lived out. So Lord, we pray that in our lives here, Lord, that we would truly yield and die to ourself and live to the righteousness and the plans and purposes that God has for each and every person that is here and those that are watching online. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.